It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. <laughs> this is another one of my pre-recorded episodes, and I'm thrilled to have Mr. Jim Thacker join me today. Yeah, baby. Thacker Live from Nashville. Um... Jim has been a taxi member for several years. He's recently on a panel at the Road Rally. I've had him on some taxi TVs. And I just wanted to talk to him today because he's becoming pretty darn successful in the sync world. But he comes from the world that so many of our viewers come from, which is I've been making music for a long time. I've been in bands. I've played a lot of live gigs. I've been recording. And people sometimes, oftentimes, make the decision that I'm going to pursue this sync thing. And there are a lot of misconceptions. And I can't think of a better guy to dispel many of those misconceptions and help uh, give out some information that will help those of you who are looking basically for a lesson in sync 101 coming from that background. Thacker is your guy. So welcome, Jim. Hi, Michael. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I always love doing these. And, uh, like you said, my my wish here is that we have some information for folks that helps them on that path. Because I definitely started um, as a musician. I went to college for music, went out on the road touring for about 10 years with several different bands. Um, landed in Nashville, toured more here, played a ton around here, um, and came here to songwrite, do songwriting, pitch songs to artists. Uh, had a little success with that, but that's a tough that's a tough road too, and just didn't have enough success and a few of my friends who were doing that artist writing were doing sync and a few of them were taxi members and doing doing songs for sync and i kind of was they were having some good success so i was like oh this looks really interesting and i've always produced music always you know had a little a studio of my own of some kind and so i was like i'll give this a shot and i started co-writing with these folks and co-producing working with a lot of great artists out of nashville too which was nice um, and slowly, you know, did taxi listings, did a bunch of those and um, had some decent success there as well. You know, some forwards and then met libraries and went through that thing. And then I went through a series of probably three years where I did almost nothing but instrumental music for libraries. Mm -hmm. um, and that was via taxi mostly. Um, and just I mean, I think I think now my count is 800 instrumental pieces I have out there. So wow. I was really I was told kind of by some folks at Taxi that a good number is a thousand when you kind of that tipping point of to see some real decent return. So I really went for that goal. And, you know, it took me a number a few years, four or five years, but I got to seven or eight hundred now. And I kind of trailed that off because I got back into songs, doing songs more directly for film now, working with supervisors, things like that. So that was kind of my path. And like I said, it was a it certainly was a crooked path. And I I learned a lot and I learned what I was doing wrong and which was a lot of things and just, you know, learned the hard way in some ways. And I would say taxi. And one of the reasons I, I love doing these and talking to you in general is because taxi was a big reason that I learned those things, you know, taxi TV and the rally um, it were just instrumental. Uh, no pun intended or instrumental in me <laughs> learning, learning how, you know, how this really works in the sync world. So that really was my path. And again, hopefully today we can give some information that helps people accelerate that. Um, I'm just checking my mic real quick here, which looks to be good. Yeah, bring that up a pinch. Okay. Um, all great places to start. Almost uh, 
man, there's so much to cover today, and I'm really looking forward and grateful that you're doing this. But okay, so first of all, let's talk about the country scene for just like a minute, because so many people think that uh, you can just write a heartfelt country song, you love country, and you're a big fan, and you write a song, and you pay a Nashville studio with some great demo players that are actually guys who play on big records, but they also have a, yeah. a side hustle doing... Uh, doing um high-end demos and uh and they get frustrated because nothing happens how competitive is it with the people who already live in nashville that are experienced professional writers that have had hits how hard is it being new living in nashville moving there and trying to compete in that arena does it take years like they say yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's it's competitive. But one thing, one of the reasons I moved to Nashville was because on the both playing side and the writing side, people were very welcome, welcoming and very warm. Like I got to write with people who had written hit songs. Everybody's pretty open to writing. And if you have talent in those areas and you're cool, hang and you're a cool person, people will work with you. They'll write with you. No guarantees of a hit there, of course. Right. But and it's still that way. I think it's changed a little bit. I've been in town 14 years, so things have changed. I, this, the town has exploded in growth, right? I mean, so many people have moved here. Nashville's become a boom town, really it has. But, um, but I think there's still that spirit of writing. Um, I'm getting a little back into the artist writing myself now too, because I've met a bunch of people and, and getting back into that. But I think there is still that element of like the stories I know and the guys I know who were kind of like me coming in cold, didn't have, didn't know a lot of people. It was being in the right place at the right time. And that's just luck or you could say opportunity, but, you, and again, you still have to have that talent. You still have to have <laughs> that skill and that ability to work with people. You know, collaboration is, is an art form. Uh, but a couple of friends of mine, they just got in the right room with a young artist. One guy I know pretty well, he got in the room with the right artist and she just, exploded like three months later and the song they had just rented was their first number one single wow I mean, that's just really that's lucky that's a but one in a million in it is in a way but he was also that month he was probably in the room with 10 other artists like that he was trying that to if you get in the room with some of these younger artists who are not even up and coming yet they're just have the skill and the ability they may rise to the top and again that's a completely more even probably more competitive scene trying to be an, a hit artist but you know you write with people who are published right with people who have publishing deals try to get in those rooms that's really the way that it happens in nashville for what they call an outside writer well Somebody then, who isn't kind of in the end yet but so people seem to have this impression that they're very talented which everybody should believe in their own skills and their own talent but they believe in themselves they move to nashville or they go there for a test drive if you will and it's not like everybody in Nashville is going, awesome, I heard a new writer landed at the airport last night. Let's go find right. him or her right. and write with them. Right. I mean, there are plenty of people for them to write with. How do you get those writing meetings? Um, the best thing, to, in my opinion, anyway, my experience is go to writer's nights. There's probably three or four writer's nights per night here. Like every night of the week, there's writer's nights go to the ones, you know, meet people, meet the person who runs it, just um, make friends too. You know, it's like, don't just jump in there and try to be everything to everyone. I mean, you, you know, show them your songs, play your songs, 
People will even sometimes provide feedback or offer to want to write with you um, if you have something there. Um, I'd say Writers' Nights is a great way. NSAI is a good organization here. Um, I worked with them some early on, and I, I don't know, I haven't been with NSAI for a while, so I'm not sure what they're doing now, but they're still around. Um, BMI is a good company, or ASCAP, you know, those companies sometimes will have writers, reps that will help you meet people. It's really just about getting out to meet people. Go to shows, introduce yourself to other songwriters. Maybe somebody's doing a show that's just a singer-songwriter, and if they're kind of in your, in your wheelhouse or somebody that you like, just introduce yourself. Maybe they'll listen to some of your music. I mean, you can get out there and just do that. Just do the old school handshaking and meeting people. Again, they may not have welcoming arms as you as you get into the airport. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> but you know, you can get out there and get to know get to know people. That's really the way that I see people doing it, and the way that I, I met people here. And you should as a player too. What I've been told, because I, I used to go to Nashville five, six, seven times a year for easily 10 years. I don't go so much now. But my friends there, and I became friends with, you know, guys like Jeffrey Steele, people who were really in the thick of it. And their advice was, if you're coming here and starting the network process, don't come in too hard. Don't come in strong. Oh, I'm a great writer, and I do every genre, but country, man, I, I'm the best at country. Be humble. Don't pitch them in the first five minutes you meet them. Become their friend. Buy them a beer. Talk about Monday night's football game and let the relationship grow organically. Was that good? At the, what seemed like great advice then, is that still great advice now? It is. It, like I said, make friends. You know, it's like don't come on too strong. That's something that's still here is, you know, if you're if you're cool. You know, like I said, if you're a decent hang and you're cool and just a, a a cool person and support what other people are doing. Um, I think that's that's key. You know, the, the talent, there's so much talent here that if you have talent, that's a good thing. But if you're a good hang and a good person, sometimes that also relates, that really relates to collaboration, right? When you're in a room with somebody. When I, I got here, I'd be in rooms with, with people and I literally would say a line and the person I was co-writing with would be like, no. You know, that. I mean, those kind of little things. I mean, just being so disagreeable or, or or setting your ways on one line in a song, those things will get you out of a room pretty quickly. So once you do make those friends, then you have to still remain a person that, that somebody can work with, um, you know, because there's just so many great writers here. You have to have that extra, that extra piece, which is just being a fun person to be around. And, and, and sometimes that also translates to the writing, right? The song is going to be better if everybody's just kind of loose and not so serious about yeah. the process in some ways. You know, you have to know your craft, of course, but if you're so held to your beliefs and and serious about the process, which that, that was partly me when I came here. I was like, I gotta be this serious songwriter. I have to, you know, every line has to be perfect. And and, and that, that was a, a roadblock in some ways, I think, when I got in the writer's room with people. And, but then I picked up on what everybody else here that was having success was doing. Um, so yeah, oh, it's good it, that it's you just, did. A lot of people can't. Yeah, they, you know, what does being cool mean? Um, people are right. so anxious and so determined that they lose their cool. And you know, you only get one shot, one chance at making a good first impression. So mm -hmm. maybe somebody should teach a course. If you just arrived at BNA last night, the airport, um, <laughs> that for step number one is taking a course on being cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I think you could also translate that to me when I say it, just being yourself. Don't don't be overbearing. Um, listen, you know, be open to other ideas. Um, sometimes may, and maybe don't be stuck on one genre of music that's like the best, and we got to write in this genre. Be open to you know, especially in Nashville. Yeah, now using hip hop, using other elements in a song. Um, but you know, traditional country is coming back too. So it just depends on what's going on, but be, be amenable and be, you know, able to, to work with people is probably what I mean when I say being cool, it, you know, cause if you try to be cool, that's going to come across a whole different way. Right. It's, it's like, like dating salesman or something. Yeah. yeah. If you know, so. I haven't gone on a date in 30 some years, but I would imagine that the, the rules of the game are somewhat similar. All the people meet online now, but yeah, if you show up for yeah. a date and say, uh, "I drive a Porsche," uh, I'm you know, and just like lay it on really thick. Yeah, Ugh, you know. Anyway, enough of the dating scene. Let's get to the topic right. which I really want to talk to you about today, which is so many people want to get into sync. And they think that the rules of the game are what they've learned for the last 20 years of being a musician, whether it's playing live, whether it's recording with your friends in your home studio, that they, they believe a lot of what I call the old wives' tales of the industry. And they think, I, I would venture to say the number one misconception people have is that my song is so good, somebody's going to use it. And I've always said it's everything's got to be good but it's for film and tv they don't pick the best song the best written song the best sung song the best the song that sounds like a hit they pick the song that works best in the scene so what can you what knowledge can you impart on people who are at that stage that you were at how did you learn and transition to understanding the rules of the game for sync versus being a songwriter or artist trying to get a record deal or just make it in general? Uh, I think it's 100% what you said, uh, you just said in the fact that you can write good songs and you should try to write good songs, but a great song may not be right for a certain scene or a certain emotion, a certain uh, placement in sync. So I think the real epiphany came through Taxi. Again, I mean, I, I say it a lot, but it's true. I. I think I was writing songs, sending them into taxi listings, and some of them might have been good songs, but when they got returned and I got the, you know, the critique on it, I I it did, I didn't get it. I was like, "Well, what are they talking about? It's, you know, it's a great song. Why are they saying something about the lyrics too on the nose or why are they saying something about an instrumental song you didn't have edit points?" You know, just little things like that that you you teach a lot and just through taxi TV and the rally classes, things like that, things that I wasn't picking up on. And it just took time of me hearing that over and over again, to be honest. And then there was a tipping point where things started to click. And I'm like, oh, why did that work? Why did that library accept that? Why did why did that get played? And then it became why did that get placed? And it really is you have to go to me, you have to go through that process. Some people there is some people catch lightning in a bottle and get lucky, but most people, you have to go through that process of figuring it out. And everybody is different, right? That's the other thing about this is that everybody has a different specialty, a different skill set. Um, you have to find, it kind of goes to what I, I think I mentioned about 
um, or maybe I hadn't mentioned that, but you really have to have a good perspective on where your music's at and, and how it fits into this. And I didn't at all. So, so I think it comes from that experience going through it. And then it's, it's just crazy. You start to learn after a while that you, you're not a very good judge of your own music. And you certainly, in some ways, have a hard time judging your own music where it's going to fit within sync. I've had songs that I did one song for a taxi listing. I talked about it, I think, the last time we did a taxi TV. But I had one song for a taxi listing that, in my estimation and in my subjective opinion, was just this goofy, dumb song in some ways. <laughs> and and it took five years, and that song found a home with a crazy sync fee. You know, I, I think I told the story before, but that those kind of those kind of events and those kind of things that happen for you make you say, okay, now I get it. You know, I was writing for of a feel and you hear the word vibe i was writing that song had a particular vibe it was silly it was funny and it worked perfectly for the placement um and it took five years for that song to find a home so you all those things i never would have known coming in like like that's just that one example taught me a, a lot and that was halfway through this whole process to where i am now so i think really it boils down to getting out there doing it finding out where your strengths are and and i think a big thing for me that like i was thinking about this before we we started was was really that that estimation or that having a, a, a handle on where your music stands and how does it fit into the sync world um because once you do that and once you can be somewhat objective which I think is is pretty hard for people. But Nearly impossible, I would say. <laughs> it, it, for for most of us, and, yeah. and I, I think once you realize that, you you also it's it's kind of a freeing thing when you can let your songs to other people, let them critique them, and just accept that also as like not that your song sucks or it's terrible or you're a terrible person, whatever it might be. It's just that they're they're most people are giving you um constructive feedback most of the time too and so i think it's it's that awareness too in letting your songs breathe in that space and, and get back that feedback and take it serious i i started doing a lot of that and when i started doing that and kind of letting go of the i guess the ego yeah. it would be or the just the you know i've been doing this for so long i know my stuff is good attitude that changed everything I think simply. Wow. That was it. You just described in one sentence, I've been doing this so long, I know my stuff is good. I see that is a pervasive problem with a lot of people that probably could become successful in sync, but they walk away frustrated and just like, you know, F you taxi, F you people on the taxi forum, F you other musicians in a broad general sense, not just anything related to taxi, but they come in with this attitude. I've been doing this for a long time, therefore I'm great. Or I used an engineer that mixed a hit record in 1997. Um, right. There are many things that people think qualify them, but it really comes down to the best song for the scene. And uh, yeah. I, I like that you mentioned that that goofy song took years to get cut because this is one of the hangovers that comes part and parcel with the belief system that you build and accumulate over the years as a regular non-sync musician that it's all about a great song and 
-hmm. that if if you turn in a great song to a publisher, it's going to get cut right away because the publisher is going to call everybody and email it to everybody and I just signed this great new song and sync doesn't work like that. Can you explain how the process of the music getting from you, let's say through a taxi listing, we've introduced you to a, a production music library and because we're starting kind of sync 101 here today, production music library is a company that specializes in publishing, uh, representing masters and copyrights for the film and TV side of the industry. And it's different than Warner Chapel or Sony ATV or any of the big publishers that work on the record side. So can you explain kind of the chain of events and how it happens on the sync side? Yeah, and there's probably multiple, but the, the basic general way that it happens or has happened for me, I can speak with my experience, is that you, know, you, you go through the listing, you get it to a, a a library, um, you know, and then you have to go through the process of, of signing your songs to that library. So there are agreements you have to put in place. Um, and that's a whole nother subject, but, you know, taking care of your business side is, we're going to talk about that. But, <laughs> yeah. But so basically, um, you know, once, once the library has your song, then it's really their job and it's in their interest to get your songs out there. And most of the good libraries are pitching, not necessarily your song every day, but they're pitching every day to their clients and they're the people that they shop the music to. And, you know, it, it, it depends on the library. It depends on the situation, but they basically are pitching to supervisors and ad agencies and uh, you know, any of those people that buy music. And then once let's say a song, okay, so let's say you get to that point and the song goes to a supervisor the supervisor likes the song, he's going to put that in place. Let's talk about a film. He's going to put that in place for the director and, and sometimes the editor of the film. Then they make a decision. Does it work for the scene? The editor might think it does and the director thinks it doesn't. So these things, the life of a song, once it gets out there in the world is so varied, right? I mean, it can become so many, there's, there's deciders that will decide on if your song fits a certain vibe, a certain scene. And you don't know any of that is happening, but it is. Um, and so that's the film world. TV world is kind of the same thing. The ad world, they're always looking for a vibe, right? The ad world is all about how is this song going to make the product seem cool or fun or uh, relieve a headache, whatever. I mean, right. like the, you know, it's like whatever that advertisement is. And that's more specific to the vibe, right? So, and sometimes they like lyric that goes along with what they're their medication is or something, you know, if, if it's, if it's a medication for depression, it's going to be, Oh, happy day or something. Right? So, right. I mean, it just depends on the situation, the use, but the basic process is that uh, is that it goes through those stages of getting into a library or with the publisher or whatever, it might be a catalog. And then they're going to pitch it to usually a supervisor or an ad agency or somebody like that. And then, then they'll make the decision does, do they want to pitch it to their clients? So there's there's several steps. Right, the there's layers, but I don't want people to have the misconception that the, the minute or the day that they sign the deal on that particular song or catalog of songs that um, they start pitching it. it it's really, right. that to me is the, the big differentiator is the old publishing model, which is still kind of the way it works in the record industry, even that's changed a little. Um, 
was we get a new song and we pitch it. We look at people that might be a good target that might cut the song because it's in their wheelhouse and we pitch it. So that's like outbound promotion versus the film and TV side of things and advertising is really responding to inbound requests. So you may have a song that's great for sync and is generically a great song, but they are not sending out an email to 5,000 of their clients, got a great new song today, you need to hear it. They're waiting and it could be a week, probably gonna be several months, could be several years until somebody says, by the way, do any of my suppliers, meaning production music libraries, have a song about loss of a loved one? And so they're not gonna pitch your disco song in response to that, nor are they gonna pitch your funky, you know, Sly and the Family Stone kind of let's get out and party song. They're gonna look for acoustic singer songwriter stuff that talks about loss or living on your own or dealing with sadness. Um, so, and, and that might not happen yeah. for weeks or months or years. Yeah, that, that's a great differentiation, and I'm glad you said that because, yeah, it's not like the, your song gets there and they just are pitching it day one. It, you know, they're, they're going to search their catalog, but also there are, there are libraries and catalogs that open up to supervisors and to people searching for music, and they're searching for your music, and they're using metadata and keywords, which is another whole important topic. I know you've done several on that. And so, so sometimes it's the library does metadata, but a lot of times you can, you know, you're responsible for it. But metadata is what you know they use to search. And if they're looking for a song about loss of a loved one, they could put even put that search phrase in or something related, and your song will pop up in that library next to ten others. And then they listen and make their decision. So there's also the process of inbound um, searches that happen in libraries, right, in catalogs quite often. So there's multiple ways that your song can get, I guess, pitched. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Day one, they're not jumping out and sending a mass email and, and telling the world, we've got this new song. So it's just it's just a different, you know, it's not like the old days of trying to pitch to an artist or something. It, it's that you're adding a song to a catalog that can, can rise to the top, depending on if there's a call for that song on any given day. And, and sometimes that's a waiting game um, like I said, that one song of mine, five years, it, it took that song. To not atypical like either. And I, I mean, had forgotten about it. Yeah, no, not at all. And so many people think, well, I'm going to be the exception to the rule because my song is so good, or my songs, plural, are so good, they're going to rise to the top. It's not about a competition. It's not about rising to the top. It's actually... It's a waiting game, requires incredible patience. And while you're waiting, don't put all your money on that one horse. I got a song signed to a publisher today. And when everybody hears it, it's gonna end up in a movie in 90 days. Um, no, just keep writing more songs because how many, you've got 800 out there now, 800 pieces of music between instrumentals and songs. Yeah, I think seven or eight hundred instrumentals and then i don't know the count on songs so so seven or eight hundred instrumental wow. pieces and then songs uh, for some reason i didn't count i don't count songs i have a lot <laughs> of them but but it, there was kind of i've i've heard people say that there's a tipping point of a thousand cues a thousand instrumental cues i had heard that before and so i was going for that goal and it took me you know several years probably four or five years to get there but that means I was doing, you know, 200 instrumental cues a year, 
which is uh, that, that's you know several a, a week. Yeah. That, that's four it a is. week. It is, and and you know I, I keep saying this kind of thing, but again, it's what happened to me. I would do four or five listings a week for taxi, and then once I you know went to the rally and I met some people, then I would know what a library wanted. So I would I would do four or five songs in that category to pitch to them. And over time, I turned around and realized I had this catalog of music built up and somebody would request that music that I did. This is another kind of waiting game thing, I guess. Like I would do, um, I don't know, at the time I was doing like some EDM and electronic music, instrumental stuff. And I do four or five of those and a library might take two. So I had three left in my pocket. And then another library a year later would say, hey, do you have any EDM? And I might go in and tweak them and and figure out, okay, why didn't that other library take these and maybe do some adjustments on the songs and maybe the, the next library would take two of those. So you kind of have, have this rolling catalog. And I think I spoke about this last time we did one of these too, but I, I would have folders. So I would have an EDM folder and, and EDM has so many categories. I would have yeah. EDM and then inside that there'd be, you know, tropical house and everything else. But I'd have folders and anytime something got returned or not taken by a taxi listing or a library, or even when there was a forward, you know, I would put those songs into those folders for later so that if I had another call for them, I had my own catalog to draw from. Whether I had to rework those songs or not, I, I might just pitch them the way they were and see. And if I got two or three returns on those songs, I knew, okay, I put them in a whole different folder. So I had this kind of system going. And I think somebody showed me that or somebody else was doing that. It couldn't even, could have even been on a taxi TV. Somebody mentioned it, but I started this folder system and that was cool too, because I was building that catalog through all those ways we talk about. Um, and the momentum just builds on that. And that's how I got to seven hundred cues myself is just, just doing that and, and putting them out there and seeing, you know, seeing what was working. And then you also learn which, like once you get to know some libraries, what kind of music are they looking for? And eventually with libraries, if you work with them enough, and again, just sticking with it, they kind of know what you do. Right. And they may reach out to you and say, can you do a collection of this for us this year or, or whatever, it might, whatever it might be. So that that process happens, but it doesn't happen overnight, uh, you know, as you said. And Everybody and and thinks it does that, based on my music it, it is just, so good. I'm going to be the exception. And, and I've mean, seen yeah. so very, very few of those exceptions over the years. Um, but you bring up an interesting point, which is a lot of people who are going from being Jim Thacker of yesteryear to Jim Thacker successful in sync think that I'm going to wait and join Taxi um, after I build up a catalog. And they don't even know what kind of catalog to build. And frankly, my advice would be don't build a catalog because 95% of what you're going to do now being unknowledgeable, ignorant of the rules of the game, the types of music and the rules of making music for sync, you're going to build, you're going to spend a year or two building a catalog of stuff that's not very attractive to the industry. My personal feeling, mm -hmm. if I were a, a songwriter or composer, would be to, um, sorry, got to mute my phone, um, would be to join Taxi with nothing and then start writing to what the listings are asking for because I use the shoe store analogy all the time because I sold shoes when I was a young teenager. If somebody comes in looking for a lady shoe in a seven and a half B with a three and a half inch heel in beige and you bring out a dude's penny loafer, nine and a half D in cordovan, 
They're both great shoes, but only one of them is what that lady needed. So why not wait until somebody says, hey, do you have this? Well, I don't, but I can make it. And now you're writing specifically what they need, which dramatically increases your chances of getting something used. Am I crazy or is that solid advice? In my experience, it's absolutely true because I would say, you know, when you were talking about that, I was thinking my numbers as far as instrumental music. I probably had 15 instrumental cues before I joined Cat Taxi. So, and maybe maybe about the same amount of songs that were produced out, 15 or 20 songs. Um, and I was just kind of, I was, I was also writing, you know, things in Nashville at that time. So I had songs that were specifically for Nashville artists and things like that. Um, but once I joined Taxi and started doing what you're saying, more targeted, doing the listings and then eventually doing things for libraries and, and kind of figuring that all out, that's, you know, when it went from 15 to 700. And, the, and I will say this too, kind of proof in numbers of the 15 instrumentals that I wrote before Taxi, zero have been placed. Zero are in libraries actually zero or wow. anywhere they're still on my hard drive here and they were not on target for about anything i mean maybe i should revisit them because there might be something cool there but i've just left those because they just weren't wow i don't know how to put it up well they just weren't making it they weren't doing it and same pretty much same for the vocal songs there's probably a few vocal songs because i was writing in nashville and you know that's a little higher level so some of the vocal songs have made their way into the world but but before i started doing it I think Taxi kind of made it serious for me because I had deadlines. I felt like I was writing. That was another thing about the experience of that writing mm. for listings and things was I had the deadline. I had specifics on what they were looking for. Um, and so I had something to write too. And me and a few co-writers of mine that were also taxi members, we would get together and write to briefs, write to listings, which is like writing to briefs actually. And it gave me that experience fast forward now where I, I, I still get returns from, from supervisors if they give me a brief on something or whatever, but I also, I also get a lot of things through and a lot of things accepted because I don't just send them anything. You have to be real careful about that once you establish those relationships, because if you just start kind of, you've talked at length many times about not sending just any song in for a listing. If you start sending people who you establish relationships with like three or four country songs for a, even Americana, even if it's that close, right. they're going to be like, well, this guy doesn't know. Why is he sending me this? And, and, you know, you'll, I'm not saying you'll fall off and get, you know, get on a blacklist or anything like that, but, but, you know, it, it's maybe difficult with that relationship. So you have to watch those things. And that's another thing with taxi that I learned in doing all that. So I, I think what you said is hundred percent true because um, I think one of the best ways, especially for people starting out is to do, listings because it relates and it translates so well to the real world in my experience you know what you are doing with listings and what you are doing with you know the things that you do with that is exactly what happens once you get to kind of that next stage of working directly with libraries working directly with supervisors it's it's exactly the same thing so it's kind of a, a great great way to learn and do that too and and the other benefit is your songs are going to get better because you're going to get the feedback right. from from taxi, you know, and and I'll go back to it again. I'm kind of leaning on it heavy here because it was so on my mind, but it it gives you such a perspective on where your songs are, where you are, you're at. And, you know, it, it's 
I mean, again, you know, and the listings for taxi ultimately are in many ways the same listings that I am seeing, you know, and, and right. working with. They're, they're listings that are, you know, it, it's a great way to, in some ways, to jump over that and get your songs into the right hands. Because, yeah, because you don't, I don't have know, those... I don't know where else you would do it. Yeah, I don't right. know where else you would do it. Now you're at a stage where you've got relationships. Um, many, I'm guessing, were fostered from a taxi forward, and now you've mm -hmm. got direct access to libraries. Exactly. Um, but, you know, people are of the mind that music supervisors are the final deciders and that they're like A&R people. This is another classic example, I think, of people that are coming from the... I'm a musician trying to make it in the industry, whatever form that was, whether it's touring or recording and producing. Um, and they hear music supervisor and they think that developing a relationship, why should I go with the publisher and give them half the money or music library when I can just go directly to the supervisors? Well, I've got to hand it to you in that over the years you've been doing this, you have been able to successfully build relationships with supervisors. However, there's a, a wealth of knowledge that you need to learn and rules that you need to play by before you develop those or even attempt to develop those relationships because again they're not looking for great songs they're looking for the right songs and this takes me to our next general topic which is the business side of things because you may even have a great song that's a perfect song for the scene but there are business aspects to the song that make it impossible for that person to use because those things are a problem. And now you've earned a black star and you might even end up on the infamous but sort of imaginary but kind of not blacklist, <laughs> the industry blacklist. Um, let's, could you address um, having your ducks in a row, something we talked about before we went live today, which is having your split sheets ready, explaining what a split sheet is, having a work for hire ready, um, so that if the day comes where you are fortunate enough and skilled enough and experienced enough to have a relation or entree <clears throat> with a music supervisor, we have a mutual friend that I know was kind of your maybe starting point, your first music supervisor that yeah. you worked with and you learned a lot from him. Um, so talk about those things that even if the music is great, even if the music is on target, have your act together and your ducks in a row address that, please. Yeah, I think that um, it, it really is important, you know, to have those things in place. So I'll, I'll start with this, the split sheets and work for hire real quick. Okay. Um, for those who don't know, the split sheet is simply among writers and I will include because it's funny recently I've kind of included this myself writers and producers especially if you're an artist that goes in the studio and has somebody else write a track or help you with a track etc so a split sheet is is um and there's plenty of I think templates online you obviously have to be careful and get the right one I don't know if you guys recommend one or not but we but don't just for political is, reasons and what would you right, recommend you can, you can. what would the search term be on Google if you wanted to find one um, Probably, you know, um, music split sheet or writers, uh, music writers split sheet or something like that. That's okay. a good question. I, I'd, I'd have to search myself. I, I forget where I, I think a friend gave me the one I have, a Nashville friend like 10 years ago, so I don't remember. But um, 
and the thing about that is it is hard to recommend because you even legally you can't but but a split sheet is a legal document and it basically just outlines who are the writers what are the percentages uh, of the writer's share so you know so let's say you wrote a song with somebody else it could be 50 50 but you also it's all up to what you want to negotiate maybe you did the majority of the writing and they came up with a line or two it could be 60 40 it could i mean you those splits don't have to be 50 50 as two writers typically it is with three writers you go to 33.3433 whatever it is but um it's a split sheet that does writer share publishing share which is a separate collection for royalties and then i've started to add especially for certain artists that i work with when i'm producing if they're working with somebody else i've given them this that has and, and as a producer uh, one that says does the producer get any cut of like the master recording the recording that they did in their studio they have on their hard drive it's important to say and that that does almost turn into i found this cool split sheet the other day when i was looking for this that said had a had a paragraph that basically said the producer waives any future royalty as this is a work for hire situation especially so if you've the hired thing, them if you've paid them to produce if it you paid them for the production because yeah. if you don't put that in there who can who can verify or say that you gave them anything i mean maybe you have a check or a venmo venmo statement or something but who's to say you didn't the, the producer won't yeah not many people do this but the producer may come out and say yeah well he paid me 200 dollars to do the track but we also negotiated 20 percent of master or whatever so let's you take know, that so, a step so further let's say writing, that in writing you and i do something and i'm not a, a studio for hire but we're we're friends and collaborators and in this case it was me at the faders at my studio and i'm the engineer and we're kind of co-producing and co-writing the track together um, would that be a situation where we would still want to include in the split sheets at the master recording um, if I did, let's say, substantial work, if I recorded it, produced it, most of it, um, and mixed it and maybe even mastered it. So I'm Mr. Techie on it. <laughs> um, right. Who owns that master recording? Um, well, you didn't pay me. We just, it happened as a natural extension of us working together. Is that something that should be addressed on a split sheet? It can be, and it really is up to the, uh, it, and technically it probably should be. I mean, it, it is one of those situations where everybody should agree, and most things you can include whatever you'd like. I mean, it's all negotiable on these on these kinds of things anyway, even agreements, right? But it's really up to what everybody agrees to, but it is always, to me, and especially now, I, I will fully admit I haven't, I didn't do it up until about five, six years ago. I didn't think about it as much, you know? Um, I have many songs that I don't have split sheets on. And if I use them, I probably would go back and get them done with the writers. I, I, even if I don't have touch with the writer now, I probably go touch base with them and say, hey, you know, this song has potential. I want to pitch it for a film. Let's do a quick split sheet on that. Uh, I would go retroactive and do those. Now going forward, I do them. But um, in that situation you mentioned, it, it really depends. Like you could do a 50-50 on the master, but the one that I have currently basically you do the writer's share up top the publishing share and then there's a paragraph that says all parties agree as, that it depends you can designate one person to be the person that pitches it i've seen that 
like you could say, Jim, go ahead. You know, you, you have those connections. You're the one stop. We hear that term one stop. Right. You're the person that now has rights to pitch this to TV, film, and you list those in right in the split sheet. Or I've seen ones, I had one from a writer the other day, and this is fine, that says all writers have the ability to be a one stop. So that means everybody in that writer's category can be a one stop. And I think it says something to the extent of, and all writers own equal share in the master. So that means right. that basically says it right there. If you get a sync fee, you split that sync fee so many ways and you all have the ability to pitch that song. Um, so that's one way to do it. You know, and again, it's all negotiable. How do you want to do it? Um, I've seen both. I've seen groups of writers where they'll just designate one person as that, but it's all in writing and it's all agreed to and everybody signs it. And that's the key, right? Is that everybody agrees to it and everybody signs because you, you certainly don't want to have a song, like you said, in a, in a hit film or a, a big advertisement, because that's when it will be an issue, you know? Um, right, <laughs> when there's big money saying, to wow, be made. That, that yeah. song did, yeah, did really well. And then, you know, up until then, nobody's worried about it, but it's, it is, it's, it's, I'm becoming a stickler for that the more and more I go on. And I'm hearing more and more issues and more and more people saying that it's getting, it's getting more, re I don't know if that's the right word, but it's getting more of a requirement for sure, because there's just yeah. so much music out there and there's so many, there's, the good news is there are a lot of opportunities and it's just important, as you said, to have your ducks in a row. Uh, split sheets are one of them. Work for hire is a different thing. Work for hire is let's say, um, you know, I do a song and have someone sing on that song, but I've paid the singer, they didn't write the song and they've agreed, okay, you pay me X amount and that's it. You've paid me to sing on your song, and that's so. If you hired me to hire sing, which would be a big mistake, by the way, but you hire me to <laughs> sing on a song that you wrote because I've got a Bob Seger kind of midwestern exactly. '70s rock vocal approach, and I'd be perfect for this song. And you pay me hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, whatever. I you send me a a good solid rough mix on two tracks digitally i throw it into my daw i record a track send it back to you it goes into the master so i'm signing a work for hire saying i've been paid i have no ownership or future claims to this piece of music right. that simple right yep it is and again i've seen many many different versions of this there are ways to um and i've done these myself with singers actually there are ways to say the artist would like, if possible, to have their name attached to it. Like some artists do, some I'm singers, let's say, some yeah. don't. Like I've worked with singers who are like, well, I kind of do TV and film as a separate thing from my, my artist thing, which is fine. And they want kind of almost anonymity. Yeah. So they do not want their songs in the credits. So that's an important thing to get into Workfire too. Mm. Some Most people are like, sure, if you can get my name in there, you could do like a featuring so-and-so, or you can do whatever, you know. Or they may create a, a, a different character, if you will, or, or yep. you know, um, like yep. for my record deal, I'm trying to get Nashville as a country singer. I'm, exactly. um, you know, Dolly Parton. <laughs> I was going to say Dolly. Yeah. I was trying to come up with a funny name, Dolly Farton, but no, I don't right. want to disrespect Dolly. She's too cool. But She's for awesome. film and TV, you might be, you know, um, Lammy Pie, a totally different name, a different right. avatar, right. if right. you will. Yeah. Uh, and, and try yeah, and build I'm up that avatar, that, that artist right. reputation within right. sync while and, you're, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of artists do that. It's branding, right? But it, it is, but certainly the artist and sync are crossing over every day. And there's huge artists that are doing 
ads and and films and i mean so it, that's a whole other subject but it you know it is there are people who want a branding on their artistry thing their artist thing yeah. and branding on what they do for ads or tv and you know and it's again it's all negotiable to me it's all good it's like whatever you want to do but have it in writing um so that's another thing that goes into a work for hire is do, you, is do they want their name in the credits do, they do you decide the these things thing, be, oh, oh go, go ahead go for numbers just, i was just going to say the third thing i see not to get too into the weeds but you also could do a, what they call a step deal so a step deal means at the bottom it says, okay, if this song makes over $10,000, the singer gets 10% of anything over $10,000. And that's kind of fair to me. So I've built those in sometimes because that's fair to a singer. They probably sold that track to the director. They're like, oh, I love that voice. So why not do something that helps them? If, if, you're, if you're above like 10,000 for a sync, it, to me, it's unfair to not, whether you do it in the contract right. or do it just on the side, help a singer out, right? I've had those situations. And so it's like, you can put a, put a step deal like that into a work fire if you want to, or just to me, do the right thing. And if you get a, a massive sync for a song and you paid a singer 200 bucks, just send them a Christmas card, you know, with, with, you know, with something in it. I mean, yeah. that's just the way I operate, but again, have it in writing. But technically, if you do a work fire and they sing for $200 and you make 100,000 on the song, you don't have to pay them another dime. But I mean, I think that's kind of, crappy but it probably know, happens that way most of the time though and i think it's really super yeah. cool on your part that you give yeah. some extra love when things succeed yeah. um i do and it's, it's just very because, again their, their voice price sell the song right even though you know i probably did the track wrote the lyric wrote the melody it, 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 they're they're a big part of that song and certainly if the vocal version makes it into a situation um, it's just, it's just to me the way to operate. And, and I think that, that goes back into what we were talking about before being, I, I, am not saying I'm cool, but being cool, like that's just the right thing to do. <laughs> You're cool. And the more you do that, people, <laughs> people notice it and, and, you know, and it's just, it comes back. You know, I do believe that hundred percent. If you do do those things, people will work with you. They'll want to work with you again. You know, cause you just never know in this business, like the, the same singer that you did right by could then come to you next year and say, hey, I have this great opportunity. Let's do it together. And yeah. it's just, that's the way that it works, right? You know? And, and it's just it's just give and take, right, is what it's all about. People often talk mm -hmm. about the taxi community and the spirit of generosity within taxi community. Before you kept saying, and I did this through taxi and that through taxi, I was going to interrupt and say, hey, everybody, at no point did I say to Jim before we started this or when we agreed to meet and do this today, did I say, plug taxi every chance you get or plug taxi no. at all. This is all of no. his own volition. But the one no. thing I will ask you to plug because you just brought this up is there is a spirit of generosity amongst taxi members and the more experienced they become, the more generous they become and the, the more network they become because of the spirit of helpfulness and generosity. You see it at the road rally with people that are 10 year long members that are maybe inching towards 50 100k a year they're they're taken off and they will meet somebody in a line or sitting next to them in the ballroom for a panel who is brand new right off the bus as it were and they become friends it turns out that the new person happens to play like world-class harmonica 
There aren't that many people that play world-class harmonica. It just comes up in conversation. So now you're sitting next to me in the audience. I mentioned I play harmonica. A year later, you've got a Miller High Life commercial uh, or something that needs kind of a down-home harmonica. And you go back and you look through your bill. Oh, yeah, there's that guy sat next to you in the ballroom plays harmonica. So mm -hmm. there's that spirit of generosity what you just explained about cutting people in even when they don't ask for it if something does really well for you you give them a taste just to say hey man mm -hmm. your voice yeah. meant a lot to this production so i'm really glad you brought that up because being stingy and trying to you know stand on on, on the whatever at the Olympics, you know, where you're holding up the gold on the Olympics, thank your coach. Thank your parents who insisted that you train six days a week as a 12 year old. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad to yeah. see that you do that. And it's old school is the antithesis of that. It's all about me. I wouldn't have made it. Uh, it's just about me. No, remember everybody else. Yeah. And, and, I don't know to me and maybe it's Nashville because it does kind of work this way in Nashville or it did, you know, when I got here, certainly 14 years ago. And it, I think it's still the same. Um, people who do that, they just don't stick around, you know, who really do that. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't lead to success, I don't think, because personally, I know and you probably the same way. I, I don't really want to work with people like that because I know that, uh, for example, <laughs> I could put in all this hard work and and they're not going to you know, do me right that way. You know, it's just, I, I just don't look to work with people like that. Right. And I will say with taxi, um, you know, the, the, especially the rally. And like you said, taxi members that I now know that we kind of came up together over the past eight, eight or nine years that I've been with taxi, we all still work together. We all still help each other out. Um, it's kind of like, and I don't know if you experienced this, but I like each year I go to the rally, I meet new people and I start working with new people. But it's funny, my first couple rallies, there's like this class of us. I'd almost call it like a, a college class where we came yeah. up together and we all still work together and we all met each other in line. We all met each other sitting at one of the panels. And and I can name probably not even on two hands the people that I still work with that I met at my first couple of rallies. That's because great. we were kind of at the same stage. You know, we were. I, I think that kind of you do attract to each other because you're at the same stage of it trying to figure it out we're doing listings we're you know kind of commiserating over our returns things like that <laughs> writing another song for the next one those kind of people i have kept in touch with and i still work with to this day and you know you know the people i'm talking about some are hugely successful with this so um but they have the same attitude that they're willing to help they're willing to kind of help other taxi members too when they go to the rally, even if it's just as simple as, oh, this is a great class for you to go to if you're at the stage, just even those kind of little things that people did when I first went. Um, and, you know, it, I remember standing in line at my first rally and um, I even remember who it was. I don't know how much we mentioned names, but you, you can um, mention in I'll, this context. I'll for say, sure. well, well, Russell, do you know Russell? You know, I mean, by, by Russell, I he don't was, know which he was Russell. in line and I uh, Russell Landwehr. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was in line in front of me and I knew he had been I'd seen him on the forums. I knew he was a, a long term taxi member. And I just went up to him and I said, you know, I don't know for my mentor, who would you pick? And he asked me what I do. And he said, oh, these two guys. 
just that was, uh, I mean, it's like a simple thing, right? It's like a simple thing, but it helped me because one of those guys that I did, I pick one of the mentors, it just really, I still actually am in touch with that person too, you know? So it's like just those little things of that community is, was amazing to me from the beginning. And my first rally, especially the second one, I was just committed that I'm just going to go every year. And I've been, I think I'm on my eighth or ninth now, but that community that you talk about is so key. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it is so important. And that's, again, that's why I love doing these. That's why, you know, I say those things about taxi because it, in my experience, that's exactly what, what has happened. And the community at the rally is, is almost second to none. I can say that. And I go to a lot of conventions and I work with a lot of people, but there's just something different and, and kind of special about that whole thing. That's great. You know, so that's, that's, what I can honestly say is that it's, it's, you know, and you always say, what do you, you know, I, you always ask the question, what do you say to people about the rally? And my simple answer is go, you know, people who haven't been just go. They never believe it until they experience it. And then yeah. they kick themselves in the butt for not having yeah. gone. You know, they've been a member yeah. for five years and never gone. They can't yeah. imagine that it's so transformative. They think it's hype. They think it's BS, you know, but you're a great example of you put one foot in front of the other, you got on the plane, you went, and it was probably significantly transformative to your career, both in what you learned and who you met. Um, and Russell, uh, I'm going to have to call him this week. I haven't spoken to him since early COVID, I don't think. I mean, it's been probably three yeah. years or more, and I love that guy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about... We were talking earlier, I want to go back to this whole concept of you're a touring musician or a home producing musician and you mm -hmm. want to get into sync. I have often said to people that there's a misconception about what the word composer means. People think of somebody writing charts and walking into a room and here you go, string section, here you go, horn section. Um, a composer today in the context of a sync discussion could be somebody that plays only an acoustic guitar and a harmonica and they happen right. to do um duck dynasty kind of wham, 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 wham. <laughs> that is you're a composer so everybody is yeah. a composer yeah. it doesn't require you to know music theory it doesn't require you to be great uh producing orchestral tracks in your daw right. so my trajectory that I recommend to people who are new and want to break in is look at the instrumental requests and look at the stuff that you already know how to do. Let's I use this example all the time. Let's say you're a country person, country songwriter, and you know how to record an acoustic guitar well. You know how to record a bass well. You can lay in a drum track from, you know, superior drummer or slate drums or whatever. So you're a composer, okay, So, but you normally do country. Well, could you do dirty country bluesy stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Could you do Duck Dynasty? Wham, 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 wham. Yes, you could. So think outside of your narrow lane, go a little bit left and a little bit right, and go for instrumentals. Do that for a year and get comfortable mm -hmm. getting to know your DAW, getting to know your sounds within the DAW, how to set up a template that can be used for other similar kinds of tracks. 
do that for a year and get a feel for the industry before you move into the song side. And it sounds like you did that, even though you had done songs before that when you initially got in, you did instrumentals. So as you move into the song side, um, well, first of all, I should mention that the average reality show uses like 85 to maybe 115 pieces of instrumental music typically. So there's a lot of opportunities with mm -hmm. instrumentals, mm -hmm. but you'll make more money per placement with songs because there's oftentimes a sync fee attached, which could be 1,000, 2,500, 3,500, 5,000, maybe on a really good day for a film placement or something, maybe 10,000. But those are fewer and farther between. How did you transition, long-winded getting to this, but how did you transition from once you mastered making, being productive and good and fast at making instrumental tracks, how did you then learn about writing songs for sync, which is different than writing songs for records? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's, you know, first of all, real quick, I want to say your concept of starting with your wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a blues guitar player, let's say, which is kind of what I was. I was blues bass player, guitar player, played jazz too. But I started there and I expanded out kind of within another circle around your wheelhouse. Okay. I didn't go from doing blues guitar instrumentals or just guitar, let's say, oriented instrumentals to doing EDM. I did eventually do do some EDM music, but first of all, when I started doing that, I worked with people, with a couple of people who did it and and kind of learned it that way and sent songs to those people and they'd be like, oh, your 808s are all wrong, you know, whatever <laughs> it was. I mean, it was, it was a learning process for sure and it took a while. But that concept of staying in your lane and a good, a year is not unrealistic at all and kind of expanding that a bit, even through taxi listings, you know, start with, go for the blues rock ones by all means. But then obviously blues rock actually is different than blues, but that's a nice near thing. You can go from blues to, you know, black keys or something mm -hmm. like that pretty easily. It's just a modified blues. So stick with those things for a while and then expand out from there. Um, it just depends on the instrument you play that. But that's a great concept. And that's that was very true in my experience. Now, going from the instrumentals to song. Oh, re, sorry, no, sorry. no, I was going to say, yeah, what about lyrics? So, yeah, go go into the song part. So part of that came from Nashville because I had been in Nashville kind of slugging away, learning. They really teach the craft here and they're really all about the craft. Even now, you know, a lot of songs now over the last five or 10 years have been less about that crafted lyric than say in the 90s mm -hmm. where it was every line had to be perfect. Then it did go to, you know, party songs and fun songs and a lot of pop kind of filtered into country. So, but it's still there. Like once a month, a song comes out that knocks me out, right? Like. I, I, what am I trying like lyrically mm -hmm. once a month I'll, I'll hear a song in Nashville like damn that's a great lyric you know so it's still here it's still kind of a, a, like look to achieve great lyrics so I had that which was nice I came here and I got my butt kicked because my <laughs> lyrics were nowhere near and and they I don't know that they ever got to national level but they're certainly better now than they used to be because of that so that helped but then I also had to shift from that going into the sync world, it's not all about the lyric being perfectly crafted. So I went from working hard to learn to craft lyric to being like, I'm not saying throw that out the window, but you have to think a little differently when you're writing lyric and when you're writing lyric for sync. And it's all the things that I see you teach. It's, you know, specific names, specific places, 
you might get a placement once every few years on something like that, but it's not going to happen often. Yeah, you're talking so about leaving those things it. out. Like, don't talk about Leave them out. Yes. a, a yes. rainy summer night in Paris because the scene right. would have to take place in Paris. It'd have to be raining in summertime, uh, you know. Be, right. Whereas if you talk about, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm going to let you well, do you know that. What's, you know <laughs> you're the writer. But, but you know what's interesting, too, that I never knew? Hopefully this is a little bit of... of uh, enlightenment for people or wisdom but I never thought about that if I do write a song there's two reasons for specifics because of what you just said you have to either wait for a scene when the director wants it to describe the scene but also they a lot of times don't want it to describe the scene right like if two a guy's on, the driving nose. on the highway and he turns he turns on a song and it's like driving down the highway uh, <laughs> many times they don't want there's no chance in hell that would happen they just want a song that that character would be listening to or a radio station that that character would be listening to. So that's where the shift is to me, is going from, like you said, the specifics, the the crafting, the perfect lyric, to being about what, what gives enough of a vibe, what gives enough of a good feeling in the lyric that can work in quite a few situations, right? And yeah. it can work, universal is the word used, but, but I think that that helps a lot because then any time that you know a gruff biker guy turns on his car stereo, he's going to be listening to who knows, you know, uh, Deep Purple or 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 blues rock or something. Yeah, he's right? not going to be listening to like bar. Yes it's, or prog rock or something, right? right. <laughs> or Mariah Carey. <laughs> it, it's and that's so true. I I would give a, a real world example of that actually. So I I was working on working with a supervisor on a film, and the director loved yacht rock, mm -hmm. and you know, older Yacht Rock, 70s, like America, um, bands like um, Firefall, or I think was the name. Which of I band, worked you know? on, by the way, just saying. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, so that was that, that was the music he had in there as kind of temp music, because he loved that music. So they put temp music in to the scene before they picked the actual songs, just say, this is kind of what we want. So those were the kind of music that was in there. But there was one scene where there was a, this gruff mechanic guy, like the, a biker guy, and he turns on his radio and it was like Sister Golden Hair or something from America. And, and the supervisor for one time did actually have the decision made where he said, I don't think that character would be listening to Yacht Rock Radio. He'd probably be listening to like Merle Haggard or, you know, it's kind of in the South. And they ended up doing a song that was not, it was actually one of my songs I co-wrote. And it was a Merle Haggard sounding kind of country song that a friend of mine in Nashville had done. So it's interesting how those things can develop. And that I think that's a good example of what you're saying. It's more about, especially in film now, what more about what would they be saying? In advertising, sometimes you can be a little more on the nose maybe, but still most of advertising is action, right? It's like, let's go. You know, how many times right. I've heard let's go a million times in ads. And I'm like, somebody else came up with another let's go and it worked and yeah. they used it. And, you know, I mean, those kind of phrases and advertising for that kind of music. So each of the each of the portions of saying do have a little different, a different thing that they need and would call for. But none of them like I don't I don't remember too many ads where, like you said, it's raining and it's like the song says something about rain in the ad. Right. It just doesn't necessarily it doesn't happen. So it's better to, to not do that for sure. But um, I think the big shift for me was just that don't be too specific. Don't try to craft everything perfectly like like kind of like nashville does that's just a different thing and try to write songs that are good songs good hook you know if you're doing commercials some hook that talks about fun or action or 
you know, whatever it might be, those work all the time. You, you hear them every day if you turn on advertisements. So I think always, that was, almost that always positive in nature too. Um, exactly. You're not going to hear a mopey singer songwriter song about she left me in an ad no. most of the time. There are always exceptions. No. People go with the rule, yeah. not the exception. It's like yeah. if you had a book that said how to win the lottery and you know the other people use that book effectively, buy the book. Don't think that you're going to invent yeah. a better way to win the lottery. <laughs> That's true. And, and, you know, film, to me, film, it's, it's a lot of different things. So a singer songwriter thing could work in TV. You do see a lot of shows like, uh, I don't know examples, but Chicago fire, there's more mm. intense scenes and they have more intimate, like sad singer songwriter songs because yeah. they love interest, but ads certainly, yeah, you don't see that hardly ever, but there are uses for that in TV and film, those kind of singer songwriter songs. And, but again, I think positive is more used even in film and TV. You know, you, you have more upbeat kind of things, but but there is there is certainly more sprinkled in songs that are not, you know, not always just happy and upbeat in a film, you know, because that's all about mood and what's happening in the film. And, you know, those shift every scene. So there's a lot of different. And you've got 30 seconds, sure. you know, uh, a commercial is going to yeah. last 30 seconds. There's going to be a voiceover very you know, yeah. it might start out with bomb, 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 and then boom, voiceover comes in, and then maybe some action with the the music comes up, and then maybe a donut in the middle. You know, try Viagra or whatever mm -hmm. pill they're pushing or whatever, um, and then it goes back to music, and then sort of a big finish. And you and all this has to be done in twenty nine and a half seconds. It can't be done in thirty thirty point two seconds because the point two, whether it's an instrument ring out or a reverb tail. That's cutting off because the network ain't going to say, oh, well, this music runs a little long, so let's shorten the head of the next commercial that the computer's going to spin. Um, so right. that said, I've noticed a trend which has been going on for years now, which is oftentimes they'll ask for a song, and really what they're after is the main point, the main lyric idea, and it should be short, sweet, and kind of bold, like girls night out phrases mm -hmm. phrases are really popular um, with yeah. advertising music they don't care about Absolutely. the verse that sets up the chorus or sets up the second mm -hmm. verse they certainly don't care about a bridge lyric or a bridge at all so it's do you have something where the lyric is just girls night out we're gonna have a great time life is good summer is the best <laughs> just boom yep um, oh yeah, I've written a uh, I've written quite a few of those those type of songs for advertising. Yeah, and many times it's interesting to me. I think people have talked about this, but it's interesting to me how many times the lyric might even just be that catchphrase. Yeah, like the the catchphrase "Here we go." You may have dialogue dialogues, you know, about the product, and at the very end of the commercial, as it's tailing out, "Here we go." Yeah, and that's the only part of the lyric they use, but the song did have a verse. It did have a chorus. You still kind of do have to write those things, right. and it helps sell the song, I think, to the ad agency overall. But in the end, in editing, they end up not using a lot of the lyric because it, in the vocal because it gets in the way of what's being said. And, and okay, again, exceptions, but there's a lot of commercials that use don't have a lot of dialogue, and it's a song going on, and that's a different thing. But but I think in general, yeah, those those catchphrases, you know, something, here we go, or let's go, or you know, um, a great day. I mean, 
I mean, how many times has that song, um, you know, Best Day of My Life been used in yeah. commercials? That That is like, talk about what we call an evergreen. I hear that on new commercials now, and that song's been around for five, maybe more years. And I mean, that that is the kind of thing that, you know, it's like just a great hook line and it's catchy and it's fun and it's upbeat. It's everything you just said. And that is advertising kind of in a nutshell for advertising, you know, TV and film, again, a little different. You can, you have more bandwidth and there's a lot more range of what they want there. So you can write other things, but if you're doing advertising, certain, certainly what you just said, the catchphrase um, and the upbeat positive thing. Let's go back to something you mentioned earlier, because again, I'm, I'm mostly talking to the 101 people starting out at square one. I, I know that a lot of taxi members are maybe a little more experienced or evolved and they know this information. It's always good for us to repeat it for, uh, you know, the more often you hear something, the better it sticks. Keywords and metadata. So uh, metadata is the stuff that's attached typically within an MP3 um, that makes a song searchable. First of all, they want to know who the, the writers are. Uh, Jim and I are the co-writers, 50-50 on the splits. Um, here's his email address, here's my email address. His phone number, my phone number. Um, our PROs, Performing Rights Organization. He's a BMI member, I'm an ASCAP member. That's all standard stuff that they want to know that should be attached to every piece of music. Um, but now let's talk about keywords, which are part of the metadata. And oftentimes the production music libraries will keyword it because they're so highly experienced at it that they'll probably do a more objective and maybe even better job of doing it. But if you are doing your own keywords, explain the thought process of keywords, because I know people... You ask a musician, what kind of music do you do? And they'll do, I do rock, I do pop, I do country, I do EDM, I do hip hop. They'll, they'll list off a whole bunch of things if they're inexperienced because they want to seem attractive to the potential, the person who might potentially sign them. Keywords, not cool to overdo it. So can you talk about how you choose your keywords effectively and should you do what they call keyword stuffing, which is adding attributes about your music that aren't true, hoping that it gets found more frequently. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's easy. I mean, you just don't want to do that. You don't want to you know stuff your keywords with a bunch of things that have nothing to do with the song. It is a fine line because you want to try to find every word and everything you can think of that does apply to the song, I think. Like, um, I was talking to somebody, I think it was a supervisor the other day, and I don't know how it came up, but keywords and metadata came up and he says, yeah, a lot of times I'll search for sunny. I mean, I had never thought to put sunny in for a song. It means happy or bright. And of course it yeah. makes sense because coming from maybe somebody who isn't a, a musician, they're thinking in other terms. So those are things I do with keywords now. This was actually probably a discussion months ago now, actually. But I have since then said, okay, how would somebody else describe this music? Stay within the bandwidth of what it is but get a little, you can get a little creative there and you can add terms that somebody may search for or be looking for. Um, the other thing I've started doing that I hadn't done probably just this past year with my own music is the title of the song may be a great thing to put in there. And I, I don't know why I never really thought of that, but like if the song is, you know, a great day, you probably should put great day in there because it's the title of the song and in advertising, they sometimes don't mind on the nose if people are having a great day and they add, they want great day. So I've started putting, if the title applies, usually if the title has, has an action in it, 
Uh, I wouldn't put the titles that are are esoteric or more, you know, out there. I wouldn't put in my keywords, but that's something new for me. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. Do as many keywords as you can possibly do that relate to that song. Maybe think outside the box a little bit of words you, you normally wouldn't use to describe it, but are still descriptive of that song and make sure they're in there because you don't know what somebody else is going to search for. So that's kind of my thinking nowadays when I do metadata beyond, you know, like you said, have your information there for sure, your contact information, all of that stuff. But that's but a great point you just made, knowing your audience, because you're right. Right. As music musicians think like musicians and maybe not even consciously think that or they make the assumption that everybody's going to think like them. That was such a great point, Jim. So glad yeah, I invited I you to do this because so, you're right. Yeah. Even yeah. a music supervisor who deals with music all the time might search for Sonny, which describes an yeah. attitude or a vibe. But yeah. a musician might think um, major key. Um, right. <laughs> you know? and you, yeah. And just staying into the basics of happy, sad, you know, another one I came up with the other day, just thinking outside the box was shimmering, you know? I mean, I don't know that I would have thought of that without putting myself in the place of, okay, what does this song sound like? And it was a song that had kind of these really upper end, you know, synthesizer things. And I was like, it just sounds like it's shimmering. And that's I think great. that's the way a lot of people think of music. So, uh, I mean, that, that was an epiphany for me within the last year. And I've been doing this quite a while. So it's one of those things you have to always kind of think about it. Uh, and metadata is always changing too. But you're absolutely right. The one thing I would say is don't put anything in there just so it'll get noticed because there's no better way for somebody to say like, oh, you know, because they're, people are busy when they're searching for music. Yeah. And if they start having songs pop up that aren't anywhere near what they're looking for, they'll probably remember who you are and be like, why is this guy doing it? Number one, he does either he doesn't know what he's doing, he or she doesn't know what he's doing, or they are trying, they know what you're doing. They know you're just trying to get the song in there and, and it just it just doesn't lead to good good optics let's say i'm one gonna, other thing i'll say about oh go ahead i was gonna go grab some books i want to hold up that that address this issue that i was going to recommend sure. but finish that thought please one other thing i will say about metadata and i just had this discussion last night with the supervisor because he said well you could maybe put an ally in there like like let's say your song sounds like a band let's say van halen so that was the band that came up He's, if you, but you have to be very careful about that. These days, I would say, don't do that. And the reason being because there is, there's all kinds of things going on in the world. You've seen Ed Sheeran with the lawsuit um, that his song kind of had the same chord changes and did kind of sound like Marvin Gaye, that that world is getting a little bit different than it used to be, you know, lyrics and melody. Now we are talking about sound alike and and you know stealing somebody's identity musically and that's, that's becoming more the and more black thing. keys the I minute think. you put it, yeah and the minute you put van halen on your track and it's it you can people can say wow they you know see this guy was trying to sound like them yeah it's basically written proof of what of you trying to sound like that band i would just be very careful with that and i i never really did it but the only the only downside to that is is, is i wish we could because a lot of times supervisors will be looking for something that sounds like that band and they don't mean they want you to copy that band a thousand percent, but they want that vibe. So unfortunately, I think to me, that's, I just leave it out. You know, I, I let the you know, supervisor can figure it out. If they're looking for 80s rock, it'll probably come up. 80s rock is a better term to put in there, right? So when that's something important in metadata too. I called uh, taxi member Keith LeBrant, who is, is great at nailing almost any style and he's really fast and just a great guy. I've known him for 
20 years probably. And when we uh, were going through the lockdown and I knew I had to do a virtual road rally, I knew I wanted theme music for it, which ultimately became the theme music for Taxi TV. And I called up Keith and I said, dude, I need if uh, ZZ Top jammed with early Joe Walsh when he was a solo guy, not in the Eagles yet, what would that sound like in the context of a TV theme song? And an hour later, he sent me back this. So that's a great example of, I gave him enough information that, and he knew how to take that and turn it into something. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really copy either one of those. People might say, oh, I hear a little ZZ or I hear a little Joe Walsh in there but it's not totally copying their style, which is what the Black Keys sued somebody for. It's not only that you're, you're stealing my melody or my lyric or my brand identity, but part of my brand identity is we've got a sound that's instantly recognizable. Yeah. So that's why I think the Black Keys was the inflection point where people said, okay, no more can we use that in our keywords, which is sad because it does make yeah. it way more effective for searching. I'm gonna go grab a right. couple of books that give some great lists for moods and keywords. I'll be back in less than 10 seconds. So just sit there and look strikingly okay. handsome. <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no good jokes, so uh, I'll wait for you. You know, it's funny, Michael, that that's uh, the Keith song that you just played. I've heard that a hundred times and I okay. didn't really think that. But oh, I'm sorry, you didn't hear no. me. But I said that the Keith song, the Keith song that you just played, I've heard that a hundred times. I never probably once thought of Joe Walsh. But now that you say it, he did perfect because he didn't do it so close that it's like, oh, infringement. But he did the vibe. And once you say what the what you were looking for, it's like, oh yeah, he nailed it. So that's a, a thing for people to know too, is when you're creating this music is, if people are asking for a band or a vibe, do as close as you can, but obviously don't copy, don't copy note for note, of course, but try to try to take it and do a little something different with it of your own. So where you're still, I think you've said this before, let's look at it this way. You'd be on a playlist list with Joe Walsh. Right. Like if you're listening to 70s radio and the next song came on, it could be that because a lot of those bands in the 70s kind of sounded that way too they were all copying each other yeah so you can do that that's the way to get around that that copying a vibe copying something because that happens quite a bit it really does happen quite a bit in especially the tv film world they it's, want something that sounds yeah. like like what they what they <laughs> want you know, a, a mishmash <laughs> yeah, all right so um this book i don't make any money from this recommendation but if you uh, again, going back to our general theme of today's show, uh, Sync 101, buy this book, Writing Production Music for TV by Steve Barden. Um, he's got, uh, let's see, I'm going to find this real quickly. He's got some sample agreements in here, which we talked about earlier. He's oh, got, yeah. an, an in the appendix, um, genres broken down in subgenres. He's, I think he's got moods in here, I believe. Um, so yeah, buy this book, it's great. Also, um, this book, 
written by he's a taxi member and this book is written by husband and wife team hey that's my song by tracy and vance marino also um has some great stuff in the appendix about styles and moods and types of music and subgenres um keywords basic objective information about the music and, and just yep. you know what Everything that you need to know has been addressed somewhere, and that's part of my job is funneling the stuff to you guys. You were going to yeah, say those something. are both great, and and I actually have both those books, and it's it's great for anyone because once in a while, you know, I know I do it all the time. I'll forget something, and I need a reference. Yeah, to be because I haven't done it for a while, I haven't used it for a while, or just need another opinion. I'll look at it's an easy way to look it up, you know. And, and again, Taxi TV, the same thing. You can search Taxi TV for subjects or there's ones like this one that's, you know, kind of goes through some of the basics and, and, men, and kind of the mentality of doing songs for sync. But there's so many great resources and uh, there really is no excuse to, to educate yourself I, the way I look at it. And I, I'm saying that to myself too. Like I have no excuse to not be knowledgeable about this because there's great books like that, that like I said, they're right over there on my bookshelf. And, and I reference them when there's something I'm not, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I don't know it all. Like there's, it's, it's near impossible. I'm so and glad you're saying this. Changes, you can't, you can't do it. Yeah. Because I'll, I'm so glad you said that because again, this is, kind of sync 101 and we started out with it's not just about a great song there's so many components you're you are a business you are a one person small business um you couldn't open a pizza shop uh and just sell cheese pizza and you also wouldn't want to open a, a pizza shop in an area where people don't eat pizza, maybe like in New Orleans, you know, you might want to go with a more regional type of food. Um, there are so many components and considerations that going into being a small business and maybe the biggest of all is it's extremely rare and don't bet on this horse that you're going to be the one exception to the rule, that your music is so good and you are so lucky that all these things that Jim and I have talked about today don't apply to you because 99% of them do apply to you. The odds of you being the one in a million, you can hold on to those odds, but sadly you're gonna go to meet your maker probably right where you are now. And if you wanna be successful, please pay attention to what we're talking about today because yep. we're doing it from the heart. Um, last yep, thing, because absolutely. we've only got a couple minutes left, which is dealing with the frustration, uh, learning to grow thick skin, be patient, and know that this is, as we've heard a million times from our many mutual friends, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Have a realistic timeline and know that you're going to grow your small business over years. Can you address that? It's so funny. We must have we, we must have talked enough because I was just thinking of that before you said it. That the one piece we hadn't talked about was that. And it's so crucial to this. I mean, it, it's so critical as far as the, the experience that I had as well. And that is, yeah, it, it, thick skin, learning to accept the rejection, whatever, however you want to put it, is it's just key. And I think a lot of it is mindset. Uh, some of it is again experience you have I think you have to go through it I had to go through so many times I'd get a return from taxi and I'd grumble and kick the desk and 
be like, what are they talking about? You know, that whole reaction. And then the next day, but for me, I think the mindset that first kicked in was the next day or a couple of days would go by. I think at first it took me a week to get over it. I would go and I would listen to the song again and say, okay. And I'd pull up the critique and the list or the, uh, the return yeah. and say, what are they, what are they really saying here? What is, you know, my initial emotional gut reaction was, was one thing, but I listened to the song again. The other thing too is, you can listen to other songs, right, from this for the same listing that were forwards, correct? So, oh yeah, kind of we should mention that on our on our website, um, you can go to blog.taxi.com/forwards, and it will show you the stuff that was forwarded. So, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, so you can compare that as well, and you have some kind of a gauge. It gives you that register. So once I calmed down from my initial reaction <laughs> and figured out those things were there, I started doing that every time. And, you know, I'd, I'd be excited about the forwards and celebrate the forwards, too. There's, there's kind of two sides, right? I would be super excited about forwards at first. And then over time, I learned to just both for both the return and the forward. I would just write another song. I would just work on another listing. And that took a while. So that's it's all mindset in, in those respects. And those things also help keep you away from that. I think it's naturally like a human condition to to feel hurt or feel like oh my you know I, i'm i'm terrible yeah. at this or whatever you might go to when things don't quite work out the way you wanted so i think that's that's for me i guess that's the one word is mindset and it for me to to shift it it took just the experience of going through that again and again and then finally luckily having some success you know through that hard work or whatever it was and just that change in mindset and not you know, being dogged about it. Like it almost became, there was a shift too, where it went from getting upset like that and feeling like I, I was not gonna be able to write a song for sync to being determined and being somewhat competitive and be like, no, I'm gonna figure this out. Somehow I'm gonna figure this out. And I think if you set your mind on that, it's a much more positive place than dwelling on, you know, those what's called not successes, whatever, the failures, then if you dwell on those, you're not gonna move forward. So there was that, moment it probably was two years into doing taxi listings actually wow and and finally again again at that by that point two or three years in i had started working sending some music to libraries and things too so that was a that was a nice thing that that was mo mo motivation excuse me mm -hmm. but yeah i think i think overall it's mindset really is the is again i'll say that word again but it's it's just getting over the fact that you know you can't be insulted you can't you can't take it personally. Um, you just have to write that next song and, and just keep moving. And, and eventually between the things we said earlier about finding your, your wheelhouse and learning these things and finding your niche or whatever, it, it's, it's, it happens, you know? And I think most, I've seen other taxi members talk about the same thing, that they just kept moving and they kept adapting and finding how, how to make this work, you know? And, and that's, that's the best thing I could say about it is just keep moving forward and don't get caught up in, try not to get caught up in the emotion of, of that, that last return or that last time that somebody didn't return your email, whatever it might be. You know, it's a thousand things, right? That you have to have to deal with every day that aren't gonna go your way. You just have to keep going towards the ones that go your way. So. Sage advice. Um, I, I think that everybody who's just uh, who maybe is thinking about joining taxi or isn't going to renew because they're frustrated or people that just joined and, and want to start out with a realistic overview. Uh, 
they should watch this video like once a month because I got to tell you, I knew you would be good because I've interviewed you before and had you on stage at the Road Rally this past year. But what you've just done in the last 90 minutes is going to help so many people. Great information. I mean, we, we literally like could write a book. We could transcribe this episode, turn it into a book. There was so much great stuff. So thank you. Um, I, I will see you certainly at the rally if you're in LA for anything. I actually may have a reason to come to Nashville this spring. I haven't been there in a long time, which freaks me out a little bit. But uh, if I come to Nashville, definitely taking you out for a nice dinner to thank you for taking the time to do this. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah, great. Mr. Jim Thacker. Yeah.